Welcome to the GeoMob podcast, where we discuss geo-innovation in any and all forms, be it for fun or profit. All right. Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of the GeoMob podcast. Ed Freifogel here. It is the 1st of April, and I am recording with my good friend, Stephen Feldman. We're doing a bit of a catch-up episode, just talking about our projects and what we're seeing in the industry. Stephen, how are you doing? I'm doing well, thank you, Ed. Sun's shining in London. It's uh, lockdown's coming towards an end, so very positive. What about you? Well, you know, good. It's uh, Easter break now, so kids are off school. I guess we're about halfway to the summer from the new year, so good chance to kind of catch our breath and reflect on how things have gone so far and hopefully uh, get ready for the next push. I usually try to work, obviously, a bit less in the summer when my kids are off school, so trying to crank out a bunch of things before before then. So there we good. go. We just had, well, we just had another GeoMob uh, last week. Which yeah, I thought it was great. Well. I thought it was great. Really good talks, really good mix, interesting, worked really well, I thought. Yeah, I, I agree. It was a good mix of some of the old regulars and also some some completely new faces and, and new uh, new startups and things. In April, I guess because, you know, with, with Easter and stuff, we thought take a little break and then our next event will be on May 12th, which also we have a very nice lineup. And I've been doing some thinking about, you know, what should we do kind of for for the summer? Uh, you know, on the one hand, on the one hand, the event last week, I enjoyed it a lot. On the other hand, frankly, my appetite for Zoom events is declining. So, you know, I'm kind of wondering, should we should we try to set up another event for June or July or should we just kind of put it on hold until the autumn when maybe hopefully we could start having the first in-person events again? Or So I'm kind of a mixed opinion on that. I think we should run one more online event at the end of June, just before we go into the summer recess. Certainly some parts of the world are definitely still going to be locked down in June or restricted in june so i think we should run one more event i think it would be nice to keep the momentum going hopefully we'll be able to run a live event in september or october that would be fantastic i'm going to put a marker down we're going to have a live event before the 16th of october all right well what's on the 16th of october on the 17th of october i've got a flight booked oh all right okay Okay. Now, whether, well, that that fl- whether that flight actually happens and we actually get to go away, I don't know. But right. I'm putting the marker down that we're going to run an event in October, before October the 16th. People can come back and... It's a worthy goal. It's a worthy goal. I guess my, my main concern is how do you... How, I, the, the problem is I think everyone has so much pent-up demand. How do you keep it from just, you know, exploding into like an Oktoberfest-style... <laughs> party but frankly maybe that wouldn't be the worst thing all right so maybe we'll do i mean i guess then the question also is even once we can have in-person events you know the the online events have had lots of advantages as well in terms of being able to record them and and attract people from all over the world so i'm thinking what we'll probably do is try to switch to a you know have one live event per quarter in each city say so Mm. so london but then you know every other you know in between those also have online events and that maybe that might be the right way to have the balance between the two. Yeah, and I think we also ought to try, I'm not saying we'll succeed, but I'd love to try a live event where we also manage to either stream it or record it so that we can keep the global community that we've built up 
to some extent with these Geomob online events. Because if you're living in in Munich and we're holding an event in London, you're not coming to London at the moment for that event. Right. So So what I'm hearing, Stephen, is you're volunteering to do all the audiovisual equipment and all of that to make this happen. So that's yeah, very kind of you. <laughs> that's and, all right. I've got uh, nothing else to do at the moment, Ed. So, um, no, I mean, that's that's been the barrier in the past, is like to actually record a live event well, such that the audio, you know, is, is listenable and stuff. You know, you need equipment, so somehow that equipment needs to be organized. And so it's not trivial to do well, but... But let's see. I'm open to all ideas. So let's see. I should I should mention one point, though. You know, hopefully this episode will go live before then. But our friends at Geomob Munich are actually having an event in April. They're going to have an online kind of social meetup. Just mm. not maybe there might be like lightning talks or something. But I think the main point of the event is just hang out and let they get to see each other again. So sign up for that is over on the website. And so if you're in Munich or want to be in Munich or consider yourself part of the Geomob Munich community, then please sign up for that. So great. Good luck to them. Okay. What else do we have to talk about? What's new on Mappery? Let's, let's kick okay. off there. Little milestone, little milestone. We've just gone through 500 posts on Mappery for a hobby project that we started in autumn 2018 to have kept it going for two and a half years now and get to 500 posts. That's that's quite a little landmark for us, I think. And hats off to my pal, Ken Field, who started it with me, but is semi-retired now from Mapri. And big thanks also to Arno, who came on board a couple of months ago. Not only does he bring energy, but the fact is that with two of us doing it, we're much less likely to get that burnout, you know, where it becomes a burden rather than a pleasure. So actually, I've got... I've gone back to really enjoying spending an hour or two writing posts and scanning through pictures and all of that. So, yeah, it's good news. What about you and Open Cage? Well, first of all, well done on Mapri, And uh, I guess congrats to, to all of you, but also to all the contributors. Yeah. We're putting their maps. So on Open Cage, kind of exciting. We're kicking off a, a big new project right after Easter. Big step. So until now, we have one product only, which is our geocoding API. So we do forward geocoding and we do reverse geocoding with open data. The issue is there's a product that many people confuse or mix up with geocoding. That's it, it is very similar, but that we don't actually offer, and that's GeoSearch. So specifically, you know, this is like being able to put a search box on your website or in your app where when the user starts typing, you know, so let's say it types P-A-R, of course, Paris should appear. Right. And many, many of our competitors offer this. Um, I mean, most notably, of course, Google Maps. And what we do offer currently is we have an API where you send us a full address string or, or place name and we turn that into a location. But we don't do this kind of partial matching, like P-A-R becomes Paris. And the reason is that, frankly, it's very hard to do for the whole world, of course, across all different languages. But also the underlying data that we rely on just hasn't been there, particularly because people expect... The expectation from consumers is basically a, a product like Google, Google Search, who, by the way, you may or may not know this, but Google actually are experts at search and have worked on this for a couple of decades. <laughs> so... 
but but also you know so people expect that you type in you know any restaurant in the world any address in the world and so the few little experiments that we've done with it are also based on the feedback we get people are like why isn't it finding this restaurant you know and you know invariably the reason is it's just not in OpenStreetMap yet so that's not really a good experience for the user but also not a good experience for us to be answering that support query a thousand times a month or whatever so but nevertheless, people have asked us about this. And wh- where we think we can do a good job is if you only want a search that is only, let's say, towns and, and cities or neighborhoods or you know, administrative regions and things like that. And that OpenStreetMap is quite comprehensive and uh, OpenStreetMap and other open data sets. So we've been contacted by a potential customer who, who wants this and is, is willing to pay and then work with us to, to get it live. So that's going to be kind of the big project for the next Great. It's not as easy as it sounds. It's even when you're talking about, I mean, you know, you gave the example of typing PAR to get Paris, right? Um, But realistically, from my where on earth days, I remember there are at least 20 Parises in the world. Of course. Well, I mean, uh, obviously London, Ontario and things like that for someone who lives in London. So yeah. when you're typing that in, you also need to sort of return results that are contextualized. Yeah, and obviously the person could be searching in any language, including, yeah. you know, I don't know if we'll support this in the first version, but, you know, languages like Arabic and, and you know, yeah. things like that, which, you know, fundamentally, obviously, we're not going to be better than the data that's in OpenStreetMap. But I don't know. I think there are we have, we have some ideas of how we can differentiate from the others. We'll see, though. I mean, the, the next step is not just, of course, can we build it, but will anyone pay us for this? Because very often people people would write to us and say, oh, I looked on your site. I haven't you, you don't seem to offer, you know, a type ahead search form. You know, do you have that? And I write back and say, no, we don't. Here's why. You know, but please tell me your exact requirements. And then some sometimes people engage and they tell us their experiments. And then I write back and I say, okay, great. You know, let's imagine we build this. Imagine I build exactly what you described. I meet your requirements perfectly. How much would you pay for that? What would you expect as a reasonable price per month or whatever? You know, and about half of those people are like, oh, it should be free. <laughs> yeah, and well, like, everything um, should be free. Yeah, I'll I, I get right, right to work on that, buddy. Yeah. So, you know, there's How a lot of thinking. How quickly do you want you know, that? Yeah. No. How there's quickly a lot of, do you want that free thing? There's a lot of thinking to be done there in terms of, you know, not only how do we differentiate this product and, and what features should it support, but also how do we... What kind of pricing would be reasonable for the the customer, but also obviously we have to make money off it, otherwise we can't do it. So, any listeners out there who have thoughts on that, please chime in, send us your feedback. Would love to know what you think. Anyone out there who wants to build that for us for free, I'm happy to take your work for free. But yeah, that's where we are. So, I guess one other topic. I, I realized we jumped over one topic, Stephen, in earlier when we were talking about having the next GeoMob. I guess I, I like your idea. We'll go. We'll try to have another one before summer really kicks off. So, kind of late June or maybe early July or so. We need some volunteers to speak. Also, of course, we're always looking for volunteers to come here on the podcast. And it's been kind of a challenge, I have to say, to get. In in some ways, it's very easy to get volunteers, and and we're quite accepting. I don't think anyone who's ever volunteered to speak at an event has been turned down. That's but, very accepting. That's not quite accepting. <laughs> That's very accepting. <laughs> no, I mean, I, I can think of one or two people who contacted us. And then when I explained the format, then they chose not to go forward. But usually it's because they want to give like a one hour talk. 
And no. I say, well, you know, that's not how it works. You can you can only give yeah. a 10 or 15 minute talk. So but it's never been the case that we've said, oh, you know, you don't sound like a good speaker or or we don't like your, you know, as long as it has any kind of vague, the vaguest relevance to location. Happy to have your talk. (laughs) So, but what we do see is that we get a lot of some people really seem to enjoy public speaking. So we get some, you know, repeat speakers, which which can be good. But I don't always just want to have the same, the same people. So would really welcome any new people, and particularly in relation to that, also kind of the topic of diversity, particularly gender diversity. Lots of men love to volunteer to talk. Very few women volunteer to talk. Um, in fact, uh, it's very rare. So would love it if any women out there have projects that, that they've worked on, their own projects, projects at companies they've worked at, whatever the context is, yeah. come tell us about your project. Absolutely. So. And and just to reiterate, we've never turned anybody down. There no. is no barrier apart from your willingness to speak at a GMOB event to you speaking at a GMOB event. Sometimes, you know, sometimes I, I see interesting projects like on Twitter, people tweet about their project and I say, oh, that looks really interesting. Let's go have that person talk. And so I do contact some people about speaking. And sometimes people are like, oh, I'm not a very good public speaker. And I mean, really, I should reiterate, I, I don't I don't think we could have a more accepting audience here. I mean, you know, no one's really going to criticize your your project or your or your public, you know, worst case, you might not win the splash map. So, yeah, but and I'd just, also say, I think lots of people are anxious about speaking in front of an audience for the first few times. It's understandable. We've all been yeah. there and had to overcome that. You don't get to be a confident speaker. Just you're not born with it. And I don't think I don't believe that it's anything to do with your genes either. I think it's just a case of you have to dip your toe in the water and you get better at it. And there is no easier way to do that than volunteering to talk at a GMOB event. It's a 10, 15 minute talk. At the moment, you're not even seeing the audience. They're not even in front of you. So you don't even have the fear of seeing 50 or 70 faces in front of you. It's a perfect environment to... uh, have that first try at speaking to an audience. So whoever you are, whether you're a woman, whether you're a man, whether you're young, whether you're old, whether you're black, brown or white, step forward. We want you. Yeah. And I guess one final point I would make is a lot of times people think, oh, my my project, you know, wasn't a big success or whatever. Or it didn't. It's not some well-known service or whatever. I mean, of course, it's it's great when we have talks with people have things that work perfectly. But I think we can learn just as much from a talk where things didn't work perfectly. I mean, that can be kind of the best educational opportunity for, for everyone else. And you can say, you know, I, I love talks where people are like, here's what I tried. And, you know, here's why I failed. And here's what I learned yeah. from it. So that could also be a good angle. Don't feel like you have you can only talk if you're, you know, your startup just raised 100 million pounds or something like that. That's not the case at all. So anyway, I welcome all volunteers on on the website. There's a form you can fill out and just put in your name and email address, a one line summary of your talk, and we'll get you on the agenda. So, yeah. What else we got, Stephen? So. Quick shout out for the Locust Charter. Last week. The Benchmark Initiative, which is something out of London, 
started by Ordnance Survey and funded by the Omidya Network, launched the Locus Charter, which is a charter for ethical use of location. Fairly simple, and I'm not going to go through it now because I'm excited to say that I've got my friend Denise McKenzie, who's uh, been on the podcast before, but she's coming. She was one of the two people who launched this charter, and her and her colleague Ben are coming on the podcast in a couple of weeks' time. So probably after this goes to air, it'll come out. And they'll be talking about it. But what I thought was interesting is that for most of us, you could say we're sort of 15, 20 years into the geo journey. You know, this stuff has been mainstream in our consciousness. It's what you and I live and breathe for the last 15 years or so. And now we're starting to talk about ethics. It's taken a long time. And I remember having a debate or talking on a panel with Ed Parsons about 12 years ago about some of the issues of location and privacy. But now it's coming to the fore. And I think that's a really good thing. And I'm looking forward to that podcast. And I'm looking forward to more discussion about ethics. So yeah, sounds like it'll be a great episode. Excellent. Yeah, I think it will be. So So what's happening new in Geo? Any news that you've spotted? Well, there was a big announcement from Google Maps. Mm-hmm. I think just earlier this week that they're they're launching a whole bunch of interesting new features around indoor navigation and things. But, but fundamentally, I think it was that they're going to, you know, AI has now gotten to the point. Of course, that raises the question, what is AI and what do they mean by that? But but basically, lots of new features, small and large, that kind of going to help you help consumers, the consumer experience within the Google Maps apps and services. So they have a long blog post up about it with some with some very cool teasers. Yeah. Right now, it looks like some just some trials in certain locations. I think in certain airports and things. But but very exciting and yeah. uh, very cool to see kind of what what the future might hold. So and I think interesting from my point of view was that what we're seeing is whether you call it AI, ML, it's massive computing power being applied to the enormous amount of data they've got to make tiny refinements to the user experience. And it's not, you know, we're way past how do I get from place A to place B and think, and what shops are on the way. And we're now down to tiny nuances like detecting which way you're facing and telling you to turn around if you're heading off in the wrong direction and using a combination of AI and AR to do that. There's some really smart stuff coming in. Well, um, I saw I saw one that again it's just a trial I guess in in one region in the US but it's kind of an integration with the large uh, supermarket chain so that you can order your groceries and and then you know for of course Google Maps tells you how to go and pick them up but and how long it's going to take you to get there based on the current traffic conditions but also such that it then alerts the shop that you're coming right so that then as your car, you know, in best case, as your car pulls up, the guy walks out with your groceries and, you know, awesome. puts them right in the awesome. trunk and things like that. Yeah. So <laughs> I can imagine that's usually complex. I mean, integrating all these different systems, you yeah. know, from, from your phone to Google Maps to the, the, the actual store location, you know, to the guy who has to carry out the groceries. A lot of potential for things to get miscommunicated there. So impressive. Impressive. Yeah. I mean, it's, we're really into the, the zone of, if you can imagine it, we could do it. 
Yeah. Yeah. Whether it's all worth doing is another question, and that's probably (laughs) one for another podcast, but hats off to Google for that. I spotted another one which interested me, which was somebody pointed me at Microsoft, and Microsoft are a company that I think you or I would um, immediately think of as being active in the geospace. You know, there was Bing Maps a few years ago, and that sort of fizzled out, and um, we haven't seen much of them in this space. But um, they have been doing a lot of stuff with AI again. Uh, this word keeps coming up, Ed. I mean, we'll have to agree what it means at some stage, but they've been doing a lot of stuff with that. And, of course, they've got their own cloud platform that they're using. But this was something called cloud agronomics, and I had to check twice to make certain that I knew what it meant. But basically it's combining colossal amount of remote sense data with incredibly high levels of resolution with cloud processing to give real-time or near real-time feedback for precision agriculture, for monitoring carbon footprint. There are ideas about how you can sort of use agriculture to re- to sort of suck the carbon out of the atmosphere, you know, to, to reverse the process. And it's an int- you know, it's just exciting to see the kind of stuff that they're doing, the scale at which they're doing it, and the exciting opportunities it's presenting. And uh, you know, I did an interview recently with uh, Will Cadell of um, Spark Geo, and he was also talking about sort of big agriculture and the opportunities there. And you know, this is stuff that I don't think we as traditional geographers thinking about place and location have thought about, but I think it's going to be exciting stuff in the future. So maybe we should try and get somebody from Microsoft to come and talk to us about cloud agriculture. Maybe we should. I mean, I I definitely think, yeah, doing those kinds of things at massive scale where, you know, the cost of all these sensors now has gone down so much. So you can have a sensor that, you know, can detect moisture in your plants or whatever, but... Mm. You know, so that's one thing. But then how do you do it at such a massive scale? What do you collecting all that data, you know, processing all the data, making decisions with that data and doing that in a way that it works in real world conditions out in the field or something? Very impressive. Yeah, and I saw another example. I can't remember the name of the company now, but I'll find it and we can put it in the show notes where they were doing it on a smaller scale with drones and what they were doing is they had a system where you you took this drone, which was loaded up with sensors, to your field. The yeah. guy comes along to your fields, right, kicks the drone off, and it starts flying a grid pattern across the fields, you know, which a drone can cover quite a large area of one farm in a couple of hours. It's yeah. firing tons of data back. By the end of the day, you've got a complete geographically referenced assessment of field of crop condition in real time that the farmer can go out the following day and actually take action with. Sure. Yeah, quite incredible stuff. Well, have you heard about the the idea of the startup where they – where did I see this? You have the drone – I mean, the drone could fly the farm every single day, right? Yeah. And then that way – then when there's a storm, there's a hurricane or whatever – and we have to do figure out what the damage was for an insurance payment. You know, it's not a bad, it's not an estimate. You literally have the previous day's data. Yeah, so, fantastic. Yeah, it's exciting. I mean, all of these things that were just kind of trials and proofs of concept or little, 
you know, on a small scale, uh, slowly but surely they are becoming industrialized. So yeah. that is exciting. And, and uh, feeding the world with less fertilizers and less environmental damage, it, this isn't a small thing. This is colossal, you know, I and mean, this really is geo-saving the world. Well, I was reading, I mean, agriculture, you know, it's something insane, like 20% of all food is wasted, you know? So we put all this energy into producing the food and then, mm. it, you know, be, uh, somewhere along the chain, it, it rots or, you mm. know, doesn't make it. So obviously huge potential there for savings. So, all right. Anything else okay. you should talk about? Stephen, or, uh, I don't I guess think so. Um, no need to, to babble on if we don't. Beyond, I would say, you know, we've gotten some good feedback on the podcast the last couple of weeks. People seem to have enjoyed some of the episodes. So anyone out there listening, if you if you have any feedback for us, please get in touch on Twitter or, or shoot us an email or whatever. And always open to any ideas you have, suggestions for guests, if you'd like to volunteer, topics we should cover, whatever it is. So with that, I guess let's wrap it up. Let's wrap it up. See you at the next year, Mob. Take care. Bye. Bye. Thanks, everyone, for joining us today and listening to the GMOP podcast. Hopefully you've enjoyed the discussion. Please don't hesitate if you have any feedback for us or any suggestions for topics that we should cover in the future. You can get the show notes over on the website, which is at thegeomob.com. While you're there, if you're not yet on the mailing list, please do get on the mailing list where we once a month send out an email announcing future events, summarizing past events, and just generally sharing uh, events that you may find of interest. You can also, of course, follow us on Twitter, where our handle is geomob. You can follow Steven at Steven Feldman. You can follow me at Fryfogel. You can check out Mappery at mappery.org. And of course, if you need any geocoding, please check out my service, which is opencagedata.com. We look forward to you joining us again at a future episode and of course, seeing you at a future GeoMop event. Hope to see you there soon. Bye.